Welcome back to Micro Digressions. This is Spencer Case. Today I'm here with Craig Warmke. How are you doing, Craig? Doing great. Glad to be here. I'm taking a bit of a break from the podcast. I had a couple guests cancel, and uh, then I got married, actually. So been uh, been kind of busy. And uh, actually, why don't I introduce my wife? Why don't you come on? Sweetie, say hello. Hi. Hi, Craig. Hi, May. Are you also a first-time guest on the show? Uh, I think... I think so. <laughs> First time guest, long time yeah. listening. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Very good. Good to meet you. Good to so, meet you too. So May, I was going to ask you. Yeah. Do you know what Bitcoin is? Bitcoin? Yeah. Do you know what that is? No, I don't. Not even a little bit. You don't have any. Bitcoin? Bit Bitcoin. Oh, uh, I, is that the, the, uh, peop- the kind of like the money that people use in the. Or is that? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. I know, I know, uh, I know that because it's also kind of popular uh, in China. Some of my co- coworkers, I think, they mentioned that as well. Yeah. Can you explain what it is? Very good. I don't think I can because I think it's quite complicated and nobody really know how it operates. So. Yeah, at least that's my understanding. <laughs> that's about my understanding, but uh, Craig, uh, I think has a better understanding that we're going we're going to get to in this this episode. Oh, that would be great! I'd love to to hear that too. <laughs> All right, okay, we're going to get to it then. Okay, yeah, bye. All right, so Craig, you before we get into Bitcoin, you come from a family of philosophers, is that right? Don't you have other philosophers in your family? That, that's right. Uh, you might have heard of my more philosopher famous brother, Brandon Wormke. He's my older brother, and he teaches at Bowling Green State University. But we, we're a family of five. Um, we have a younger sister who's uh, at least recently been coordinating kidney transplants down in Tennessee. Um, but my, my brother and I are the only philosophers in the family. I see. I see. Yes, I know. I know Brandon. He's a friend of mine. I wrote a review of the, his the book he co-authored, mm. and uh, so great. It's great to have you on. So I uh, wanted to ask you about your work on on Bitcoin. Now, I would have thought that this was um, like political philosophy kind of work, but actually, it's it's sort of more metaphysics. Is is that right? Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, just like, you know, any kind of uh, thing that's out in the world, you can ask what it is. And so there are metaphysical and ontological questions about Bitcoin. I am interested in questions that would that would probably be better categorized as political philosophy about Bitcoin, but I'm not a specialist in political philosophy. So that's something I'm, I'm trying to work on. Um, I'm also interested in... Um, you know, the way that uh, Bitcoin intersects with certain issues in economics. But again, I'm not a specialist in economics either. Um, so for now, I'm working on uh, these metaphysical questions as I try to bootstrap myself into being a little more knowledgeable about these other fields. I see. So yeah. before we get into the metaphysics, as, as May was saying, a lot of people, very much myself included, find Bitcoin just very confusing on a purely descriptive level. 
it apparently works by something called blockchain technology, which to me just means nerd magic. <laughs> it yeah. works through nerd magic, you know. So if anybody says, I don't understand how that part of your argument works, my answer is blockchain technology. And, yeah. and they'll just have to assume that I know more than they do. Yeah. So before we actually start to explain it, I think it would be useful to explain why I think it's important so that before we you know, head into how it works and what it is, people are a bit motivated to want to know the answers to those questions. I am so tired because last night I was up until 2 a.m., because I was listening <laughs> to the president of El Salvador talk to my friend on Twitter in front of 22,000 other people. And why was I doing that? Well, they had written a bill, uh, you know, for the country to make Bitcoin legal tender. And within a few hours of the bill being written and published, uh, the parliament passed it by a supermajority. And so now Bitcoin is actually, as of today, Bitcoin is legal tender in El Salvador, which means that uh, according to the bill, Article 7 says that insofar as vendors are, are technologically capable of accepting Bitcoin, they must accept Bitcoin as a means of payment, even in paying off certain debts that were previously denominated in U.S. dollar. And the uh, they have like a national development bank, which will hold... Uh, eventually hold up to like $150 million of Bitcoin. They are committed to, this is in like Article 8 and 14, committed to um, educating their citizens about how it works and um, developing infrastructure with like Bitcoin payment systems to help everyone pay when they want to. And so here we have our first country, our first country that has made Bitcoin legal tender and so that, I think, should raise some eyebrows. Why would a country do that? That's, I think that will surprise some people. I think of the president of El Salvador as kind of the political version of a CEO of a company called MicroStrategy, who first arrived on the scene in the fall in like August 2020. His name is Michael Saylor, and he has a, a software analytics company, and he had uh, something like $500 million in cash burning a hole in his pocket. And he was trying to figure out what to do with that cash because you know, he was prescient in this way. The, the dollars on his, on, on his uh, balance sheet were melting like ice, ice cubes because of inflation. And what are you supposed to do with all that cash? So, so we bought $500 million worth of Bitcoin. And then he bought another billion dollars worth of Bitcoin. And now he's taking out billions of dollars of worth of loans. This week, he's taken out a $500 million loan to buy Bitcoin. And then um, he's also um, taken debt from other companies to issue bonds so that he could buy like another billion dollars worth of Bitcoin. And so he now has something like, you know, uh, oh, the, the price is so volatile, but between 1.5 and like $3.5 billion worth of Bitcoin. So what would unite these two totally different kinds of people, the president of a country like El Salvador and the CEO of a software analytics company in the United States to buy so much Bitcoin, to use Bitcoin? And it looks like 
for both of them become very strong Bitcoin advocates. And I think what this speaks to is uh, the very particular set of properties that Bitcoin has. So before we get into how it actually works, everyone should know that Bitcoin has a 21 million supply cap. So there's a, a fixed supply. You know, the way that Bitcoin achieves the su- supply cap involves these pretty amazing advances that we that we would now associate with blockchain technology. But what what the blockchain is doing, first of all, is securing this 21 million supply cap and it's on a issuance schedule. So every 10 minutes, there's a new block of transactions from all around the world. I think of these as like chapters in a book. What uh, the Bitcoin network is doing, which consists of all these computers all around the world, they are validating transactions all the time. As transactions are validated, they send them across the network and miners pick up on them. Those miners are competitive publishers. They're competing to publish the next block of transactions, the next chapter of transactions in this book, which is really just a ledger, a ledger of transactions. <laughs> so as transactions get validated, miners compete to publish them. If a miner succeeds in publishing a block of transactions, then all these computers on, on the network will say, okay, that is a good block. Now I will append that as the latest chapter of my Bitcoin book. The, the ledger, or and then the competition starts anew. And this happens every 10 minutes. Now, this achieves the supply cap because new Bitcoin is also issued every 10 minutes. And this is called the Bitcoin supply schedule. So the miner who wins the publishing competition gets to insert in the very chapter that he's trying to publish a little sentence that says, I reward myself so many Bitcoin. And so if the miner succeeds in publishing that chapter, that miner has won that Bitcoin as long as all the other computers on the network agree. And so this supply schedule is started in 2009, which was when Satoshi Nakamoto, the pseudonymous creator of Bitcoin, started the network by himself. And that schedule goes in this way. Every 10 minutes, a certain amount of Bitcoin is rewarded. But every four years, the amount of Bitcoin that's rewarded every 10 minutes splits in half. So in 2009, the amount of Bitcoin you could win as a miner every 10 minutes just by running your computer, you know, in your office was 50 Bitcoin. Four years later, in 2013-ish, down to 25, and then down to 12 and a half. And then it'll go this way, uh, cutting down every four years until the year 2140, where the amount of Bitcoin that will be mined will reach its cap just under 21 million, and then there, there will be no more Bitcoin ever mined. And so that's the supply cap, and that's what's motivating someone like Michael Saylor. Well, what's motivating you know, the president of El Salvador? One reason that's motivating the president of El Salvador is the very same reason that's motivating Michael Saylor, which is that you notice that in the issuance of Bitcoin, there's no central bank. There's no Federal Reserve. There's no monetary or fiscal policy that is issuing money and assigning where it should go. 
So it, in that sense, its monetary policy is incorruptible. It's incorruptible because it's automated. Big reason why someone like the president of El Salvador would want to have Bitcoin as legal tender. 70% of his citizens are unbanked. All you need is the internet to download a free open source software app. Then, then you can transact on the Bitcoin network. You don't have to submit a, an application. Your participation doesn't require any registration with any central parties. It's cheap to transact, uh, very cheap, uh, basically free. So there are no intermediaries to take a cut off your transactions like we have here with credit card companies. There are no banks that can deny you access with Bitcoin. It's just free to use. It's the most inclusive financial network that humanity has ever had. And so it's, it's these two properties that have come together in Bitcoin. Number one, it's scarcity and automated and predictable supply schedule. And then two, it's financial inclusiveness and its lack of intermediaries. Totally. And this is what brings together people who have lots of money, like Michael Saylor, and people who have no access to banks, like the people in El Salvador. What's metaphysically interesting about Bitcoin? Like, wouldn't we say whatever we'd say about the dollar? Like, the, like presumably, I think what we want to say about the dollar is that dollars are real, they exist, but they're socially constructed and contingent on human attitudes but they're real things of that kind. So is there anything about Bitcoin that makes it fundamentally different than like the dollar? Yes and no. So insofar as metaphysics goes, I mean, I can tell you about my own line of uh, philosophical, philosophical discovery um, about Bitcoin, the relationship between Bitcoin and the dollar. So, you know, Bitcoin is what hooked me in a few years ago. And so I was most interested in what it was and how it worked. And the reason I was interested is because I, I came to the table with this fairly intuitive but false view of what Bitcoin probably was. I thought that each Bitcoin was something like a string of symbols, a string of characters. And so that when you transact in Bitcoin, it's like handing over cash with serial numbers. So every every little dollar bill you have it's it's been you know stamped with a plate and that plate says you know like where the where the bill was stamped the the plate that it was stamped with the location on that plate and so and, and so on and so you have you know these unique I identifiers and i thought that each bitcoin had a unique unique identifier like this but what i discovered is that this is not right and so i started writing about bitcoin because i wanted to correct other academics who thought that bitcoin worked in this way that Bitcoin was each Bitcoin was like a string of symbols, and Bitcoin is not a string of symbols. It's instead, instead, like you said about the dollar, um, it's it's this kind of socially constructed thing. But more fundamentally than that, when you look at the Bitcoin ledger, what you don't see is this passing of string of symbols from person to person and the changing of title. Instead, what you what you see are just updates to the amounts that an address has. So every time you s send Bitcoin, and this is just as simple as like sending an email or a text message or sending money on Venmo, you specify, you know, how much Bitcoin you want to send and where you, you want to send it. And that's it. And so it's very easy. 
But what happens when you send that transaction is in when it gets embedded into the Bitcoin ledger, all that's in the ledger, I mean, there's a lot more technical stuff going on, but um, all that's that's important for our conversation that's in the ledger is the sentence that says that, you know, some address gets, you know, 0.25 Bitcoin. Okay. And so there's no serial number there for the Bitcoin that you send. In fact, each Bitcoin is divisible up to eight decimal places. So each Bitcoin has 100 million units called Satoshis. And so if, if you were going to transact with the kind of digital cash that had serial numbers for units like this, it would, it would be unworkable. It would be really computationally expensive and prohibitive. And so all, all that happens instead is that you, you say, send 0.25 to this address. And then that's embedded in the ledger. And so you, we have these kind of primitive quantities that don't have atoms that are individuated and traceable in the ledger. Um, so what are these primitive quant- quantities then? Well, I mean, I call them quantities of a fictional substance. And the reason why I say that is because, I mean, I have a, I have a whole paper. It's called, What is Bitcoin? that explains what Bitcoin is and how it works in a phys- philosophically rigorous way, but hopefully pretty accessible. And I mean, I, I, I take a, a modeling strategy there, but here I'll do something different. I'll do a, um, like a process of elimination. And so if no Bitcoin is a chunk of code and the Bitcoin ledger is not, is not representing movements of a substance out in the world, you know, like bars of gold, then what could these primitive quantities of Bitcoin be? Well, it has to be some sort of abstract substance. And I hesitate to call it just purely abstract and, that, and, and then leave it there because this is not like we're talking about the unchanging realm of numbers in Plato's heaven. Instead, we're updating it like we would if we were writing like a fictional story, like, like through serial. And so like a serialized fictional story. And, and so by process of elimination, you would say, well, it's not code. Bitcoin is not code. The asset is not code. Nor is it something physical out in the world that we're moving. Okay, so what else really could it be? And um, maybe there are some other candidates that I haven't crossed off here. But it seems to me the the best way to think about Bitcoin is to think of a think of it like a fictional substance, like kryptonite or butterbeer. Except the authors here are not like J.K. Rowling or, or Conan Doyle. Instead, the authors are all of us the transactors, the people who are writing the transactions and saying which amounts of quantities should go where. I wanted to ask you, though, so you're describing it as as fictional, but I want to know what exactly we can say about what's fictional and what isn't when it comes to things that are socially constructed. So if if you and I decide, hey, it would be funny if we treated monopoly money as if it were real money, and then got our friends in on this joke and we had bets with one another and we played poker with it and okay, so on and so forth. It wouldn't be real money um, to an extent, but if this became systematic enough, like if we kept doing this and there were enough of us that were treating it this way at a certain point, it would become real money, right? So it wouldn't be fictional anymore. It would still be socially constructed, but it wouldn't be fictional. And so when you say that Bitcoin is fictional, I'm not sure what you what you mean because it sounds to me like it's a real thing and it's a real socially constructed thing. Yeah, that's a great question. So I, I would like to separate two issues. What 
make something money? And then what the thing is that that is money or could be money. So monopoly money could end up being more money, you know, if enough people trusted it and believe in it and start transacting it in, in certain ways. Almost anything could be money in that way. I mean, it might be bad money, you know, it might, it might be durable or divisible or portable and so on. Um, but you could still, you know, trade it. People could still use it as a kind of shelling point if they really were committed to it, to trading and using it as a unit of account, the medium of exchange, to store value and so on. If enough people agreed, you could do that, even for monopoly money. So, so that's not fictional. That's, that, you're right. That's real. But what is the thing that people could collectively trust and use as money? Well, in, in my view, even fictional or abstract things can serve as, as the object of our collective trust in, in the ways that we transact. And so all I want to say is that the, the primitive quantities that we trade around in Bitcoin, these are a particular kind of abstract substance, a fictional substance even though it's real that we trust it. It's, it's, we, we, we trust the ledger. We can transact with it. That's real. Now, I, I think this brings up two related issues. One is one issue that you brought up earlier, which is, you know, is this different from the dollar? And then the other issue is an issue that is unique to I don't want to say unique. It's an interesting feature of blockchains, blockchain assets like Bitcoin. So what's the difference between Bitcoin and the dollar? Well, actually, as far as like fundamental metaphysics go, as I discovered, and you, you're much smarter than me, but you clued in on this like right away. There's not much difference when it comes to fundamental metaphysics, because suppose I hand you a $20 bill. Okay. I've handed you one thing, one thing, the bill. Um, I haven't handed you 20 things. Or at least if I have, it's, it's derivative. The, the handing of the 20 is derivative on the, on, on the handing you of the one thing. So the one thing is not the 20 things. And so dollars, what are they? Uh, well, they're not the dollar bills. We, we call dollar bills dollars, but that can't be what, what's going on just by, it's a simple application of Leibniz's law. And it took me a long time um, an embarrassing long time to to draw this um, inference, and so um, if if dollars aren't dollar bills, and in in inverse inversely, if dollar bills aren't dollars, then what are dollars? And what's the relationship between dollars and dollar bills? Well, a dollar bill signifies or represents a certain number of units of dollars. And so what are those? Well, they're not out in the world. They're not physical. They're not pieces of code or anything. And so I draw the very same conclusion. The dollars themselves are this kind of abstract entity, just like Bitcoin. Now, there's one additional wrinkle on this issue about like truth and fiction when it comes to blockchains. So if I give you a dollar bill, I can't turn around and say, Hey, I didn't give Spencer a dollar. I mean, I could say it, but it would just be false or I'd be lying. But there's an interesting issue with blockchain here where if the ledger says that I've given you Bitcoin, that makes it true. So the grounds for the truth 
about where Bitcoin is are in, inherent in the blockchain itself, in that ledger. Whereas if I give you a dollar bill and write down on our ledger that I haven't, like that ledger is false, but the Bitcoin ledger cannot be false. So how can the Bitcoin ledger not be false? Well, that's because it's, it's precisely because the Bitcoin, the asset is native to the ledger that what it is for Bitcoin to sit at a certain address is for Bitcoin to sit at that address in the blockchain. And so, and so um, these issues get complicated. So, so to sum, summarize this, Bitcoin is a fictional substance or abstract substance. So is the US dollar. That doesn't mean it's being money isn't a real thing. That's a real thing for, for both kinds of money. But there's an interesting difference between blockchain technology and maybe other forms of monetary instruments and ledgers in that the grounds for the truth of where the money sits is it rests inside the ledger itself for Bitcoin. That's interesting. I wanted to still, there's this one thing that's like my mind is catching on. I just can't get past, which is the thought that how can something be fictional and also be real money? It sounds like it would have to be real and not real at the same time, unless there's some distinction about the sense in which it's real and the, the sense in which it's fictional. There's some, there, there are two notions of being real going on here. Yeah. So I'm, yeah. Hoping you can help me see, like, what is the what is the sense in which it's real? So, because it's not just our confidence in Bitcoin that's real; it is real money, right? Our confidence is real, and that's what makes it real money. But it, like, it is real money, and yet it's a, it's a fictional substance. I I guess I wouldn't want to call it a fictional substance. Yeah. I guess that I mean maybe you got other things you can say to bring me on board here, but that's like my one hangup I'm having. Yeah, yeah. Well, for right now, so in the in the in my paper, what is Bitcoin? I use this model where I explain what Bitcoin is and how it works by presenting a simplified model where a bunch of people are co-authoring this very simplified story about passing bread from baskets to baskets, and so it has it has basically all the essential features of the Bitcoin network and how Bitcoin works. And so the argument there is, uh, it goes like this. The, the bread that we're writing about, passing from basket to basket, that's a fictional substance. There's no issue there. So if Bitcoin and the Bitcoin network works in much the same way as bread in this massively co-authored story, then all the reasons that we had for thinking that bread was a fiction would also be reasons for thinking that Bitcoin is a fiction, fictional substance. Your issue about it being real money, I'd want to say, well, again, there's these two separate issues, which is what's the thing that is money? And then what what makes it money or makes it real money? And there is there is something beyond just our collective trust that makes that or uh, that allows for a fictional substance to serve as money. Now, before we had uh, state-issued fiat currencies, so these are um, the kinds of currencies that we have now, like in the United States and basically every other country in the world, they're not backed. What that means is 
I can't take a $10 bill to the Federal Reserve or one of the 12 branches of the Federal Reserve and say, give me gold. <laughs> the dollar bill is not pegged. There's not like a an exchange rate that's kept by the central bank. And the dollar is not redeemable for that certain amount of gold at that rate. So it's not paid. It's not um, redeemable. We just treat it as money, meaning that we, we trans, you know, we, we exchange it. We use it as a unit of account. Um, we can s- store value in this way. And Bitcoin is a little, a little different, but very similar. So dollars are also these kinds of abstract entities, just like Bitcoin is. And it's not backed. They, they, we can't take our Bitcoin to the Bitcoin bank and redeem it for you know physical Bitcoin. But uh, even so, e- and even though Bitcoin is a fictional substance, we have a particular sort of trust that it can s- serve as money precisely because the network achieves consensus about where the money is at a certain time. So when you have physical forms of money like gold or gold coins, the world itself ensures that that money is where it is just by the laws of thermodynamics. When you have the the kind of abstract entities like US dollars, what ensures where those dollars are, um, when they are, it all kind of boils down to uh, the U.S. government. So dollar bills uh, have been said by the U.S. government to function as real, <laughs> real bills that represent dollars. So in the absence of this, of this kind of uh, central bank or money issuer, how can we trust that a fictional substance, a digital commodity like Bitcoin, isn't it something that we can just copy and paste? And isn't it something that we can just uh, write anything we want to about where the money is, when it is? And this is where uh, Bitcoin's consensus mechanism comes into play. Because the it's not the thermodynamic laws, like like the, like the gold's um, like like the the mass of gold in your pocket that's dictating where the money is when it is. And it's not the central bank. So how does it do this? And this is one of the main advances of Satoshi with Bitcoin. The the whole network, without a central authority, achieves consensus about where the money is. Uh, And it's because of that that we can trust it, that we're willing to trust it in this particular way of achieving consensus. And it's because even though Bitcoin is a fictional substance or an abstract substance. The the ledger that we achieve consensus about uh, restricts what we can say about where that money is. There are certain rules for how how this you know quote unquote the story evolves. And so this is very difficult, I think, to to wrap uh, your mind around, uh, or at least it was for me. But if if we separate these two issues, like you know the 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 fundamental ontology of the unit, and then you know what what makes that thing a good form of money that would inspire our trust in it, that would help us, or at least at least um, 
inspire us to to trade it and save it and so on and trade U.S. dollars for it, I think the issues at least become a little clear. So it occurs to me, like money originally was just like the goods and services that people would trade, and then and then you had something that was like like gold or silver. Or, or something like that, that was like a store of value that just represented those other things. And then, you know, John Maynard Keynes said that uh, gold was a barbarous relic, you know. Yes. Now we've transcended gold to paper money. And I, I have intuitions about this. I mean, I'm not an economist, but I, I find it really suspicious that it's just a part of the evolution of money that people would drop off their their gold at uh, safe houses and then they would lend some of it out and um, hope that not everybody would come back and reclaim it all at once. It seems like it's some dishonesty is in the, the necessary feature of that part of the evolution of money. And now it seems like the trajectory is, is continuing to something that's even more abstract. So like now we, paper is the barbarous relic and yeah, and the Federal Reserve is the barbarous relic. And it's almost like like even paper money, that's fiat currency. There's a sense in which people were freaked out that it was like it's like floating in the air or something. There's nothing holding it up. But then Bitcoin, it's it's even more like that because it's not even contingently attached to anything physical. Like it has no base that that is anything other than itself. Like it's, and it could never be anything but money. Like I, you couldn't yes. ever use any a Bitcoin for anything else other than to use it as money. I don't think, right? No, that's right. So there's um, this really great paper by the economist George Selgin, where he argues that Bitcoin is a synthetic commodity. Commodities are things like uh, gold, corn, things that you can y- use. So they have non-monetary value, either as food or jewelry, status being a status symbol or so on. Bitcoin, by being purely abstract, has no non-monetary value. It is pure money, pure money. And so its usefulness resides purely in its form of being a unit of account and a medium of exchange, and especially right now, This is just the way things have evolved, a store of value. So we can say literally that not only is Bitcoin real money, it's more real than any other kind of money. It's more real money than the dollar. Yeah, 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 that's that's an interesting point. I didn't thought of putting it that way, but that's a tantalizing way of putting it. It has a pure, it is as pure a version of money that we've ever had. That's right. So I read your paper that criticized the um, the artificial commodity view, and I wanted to he- hear you articulate that view, and then I've maybe got a thing or two to say critically. I'd, I'd be interested to get your response to, but l- let me hear your your criticism of the synthetic commodity view. Other, well, I mean, you said part of it already, which is that yeah. you can't use a Bitcoin <laughs> for anything else. But there was this thing about the, the individual Bitcoins not having their own individual identities. I wanted to yeah. ask a follow-up about that, but after you explain it. Oh, good. So we can think of um, the category of synthetic commodity as a pretty wide umbrella. 
So any commodity that's going to be uh, digital or digital digitally represented can serve as a, a synthetic commodity. And so Bitcoin is just one way of being a synthetic commodity. Um, we have these like abstract primitive quantities, um, but there were several previous attempts at developing things like Bitcoin um, going back through the 80s. And Bitcoin was just the first one really to succeed because it figured out some of these interesting issues in computer science. So in, in, in some of these earlier attempts at Bitcoin, a couple of them were actually you know somewhat workable, but they either used like a central authority to issue money or um, for several of them, each unit had like a, a traceable identifier. So we had digital or synthetic commodities here, but ones unlike Bitcoin that had like little traceable units. And often these these little units were called uh, coins or tokens or notes. Now, Satoshi Nakamoto published online on Halloween 2008, the famous Bitcoin white paper. So if, if you haven't read it, you should give it a glance it might be difficult to understand, but I think if you work through it, eventually it'll blow your mind. And, and so in the white paper, which Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter and Square, he's like a dual CEO, he calls it poetry, the, the white paper. And I, I very much think of it that way. It's a, it's a piece of art. Um, it's so beautiful and concise and um, just a real contribution. I think Satoshi deserves... Um, like the Nobel Prize in Economics and the Turing Award in Computer Science. Um, I think it's, uh, whoever Satoshi is just a beautiful mind. But in the in this first page of the white paper, uh, no, it's a few pages in, uh, Satoshi says, we define an electronic coin as a chain of digital signatures. And so if you're thinking that Satoshi is using coin, the word coin there, the way that his predecessors would have used that word, then it looks like what Satoshi is doing is defining a Bitcoin as a chain of digital signatures. And what's that? Well, uh, think of a check. You know, I, I can sign a check over to you. And then this doesn't really happen as much anymore. But then you could take that check and sign it and pass it along to someone else. So then you on the check, you have this like chain of title um, so that the most recent name on the check is actually the owner. And then you can see the transaction history on the check by the signatures that have been like building um, from the from the very first transaction. And digital signatures work in much the same way. You can sign a digital document. I mean, I think a lot of us um, who work in universities have had to digitally sign PDFs for certain things uh, to apply for funding and or whatever. And and that's using pretty much the same technology. So. If you think that every Bitcoin is a chain of digital signatures, then you'll think that, you know, there's some like digital kernel here, and then you can digitally sign it and pass it along to someone, and then they digitally sign it and pass it on to someone. So that these digi digital signatures build like digital amber. Um, it's a lot like, you know, if people are familiar with logic, it's like um, putting an input into a function and then putting that into a function and so you, you get the you know these embeddings and you can see like oh where it all came from at the beginning and so um because satoshi uses this language that he's going to define electronic coin as a chain of digital signatures 
you know, academics in several different disciplines ha- have uh, repeated the, this definition and then identified each Bitcoin with a chain of digital signatures. And that's just not how Bitcoin works. The issues here get pretty technical. But what happens in the Bitcoin ledger is that every transaction has inputs and outputs. And so inputs are the Bitcoin that you claim to send. Then the outputs are just specifications of how much Bitcoin goes where. And so with with an input, you unlock a certain amount of Bitcoin. And then in an output, you lock it away for someone else to claim it. Someone who has a kind of password that will provide the digital signature that will unlock it. Okay. Now, these inputs and outputs in a, in a transaction, uh, together, they, they function as kind of a, a digital document. And so you might think, well, especially the outputs, you, you might think of them as like checks. And so you might think, well, maybe Satoshi means to identify these digital checks with the coins. And then so what an electronic coin is in the white paper is a an, an unspent transaction output, this kind of digital check. And that doesn't really <laughs> quite work either for um, some technical issues that I addressed in the paper. So I, to make a, a very long story short here, what's going on? Well, I think uh, it's it's not true that every Bitcoin is a chain of digital signatures because of what I said earlier, the Bitcoin ledger only represents these primitive quantities. And so Bitcoin dish doesn't work this way in like signing over particular units and sending over those. It works in this input output way where you you specify the the quantity that you want to send. And even, even these outputs aren't going to be chains of digital signatures because they, they have only one instance in the ledger. Okay, so every out, every transaction output just sits where it is on the ledger, and, they, and then blocks get built on top of it. It only has one location in the ledger, and so it itself is not a chain of digital signatures. Okay, so what is what? Does, so what does Satoshi mean then? I mean, he's so smart; he has a beautiful mind. And uh, so, what did he mean? I think he just meant that every every one of these primitive quantities can can for a time be represented by a chain of digital signatures. So, you know, this happens a lot in philosophy where you like use formal tools to represent or stand in as kind of uh, models. So for example, we might represent a, a proposition as a, the set of possible worlds at which it's true or a location in dimensional space as like a set of um, set of numbers. And I think that's what Satoshi's doing here uh, where He's saying that the primitive quantity of Bitcoin in a particular transaction output can get carried through as people claim that quantity and send it elsewhere. But those quantities can be split up and combined and so on. And so the the way that we represent these primitive quantities, um, you can represent them by chains of digital signatures, the the digital signatures that um, are assigned over these transactions, uh, but only for a time, uh, only up until the quantities are split up. Okay. So Bitcoins can be represented by chains of digital signatures, but they themselves are not chains of digital signatures. So they must be something else. So what do those chains represent then? Like what, what are they? Yeah. Yeah. So this is, this is difficult. So suppose 
I send you a quarter of a Bitcoin, and then you send May a quarter of a Bitcoin, and then she sends it to someone else. Well, then in, in this kind of simplified version, and, and suppose we don't have to pay any transaction fees. And so that whole quarter Bitcoin it just remains intact across, across these transactions. And then we can say, hey, that quarter Bitcoin, it's been preserved across these, uh, this series of transactions. And in fact, we can represent its preservation by pointing to the digital signatures over those transactions. And so we can say that um, this, this chain of digital signatures represents that quantity. That works in simple cases like that. But then we have to remember that, well, um, these quantities can be split up. These present really interesting issues, especially for philosophers who, who have some background in probability. So suppose, Spencer, that you and I and that you can do this in Bitcoin, you and I coordinate and we each send a quarter Bitcoin to an address. And then the person who has the private key to that address sends it to another address. So we'll just kind of elide over certain complications. Um, the, the person who has that half Bitcoin at the end ha- has, a, has a whole half Bitcoin. And that person can't point to any Satoshi, any, any of the smallest units and say which of them, which of the addresses um, they previously came from. So now suppose that person uses that half Bitcoin and splits it across two addresses. So, so, so there's a quarter and a quarter to two more addresses. So now we have two more people, uh, let's say, and, and one of them, each of them, um, each of them has a quarter Bitcoin. So pick one of them and that person, let's call them Alice. Alice, where did you get your quarter Bitcoin? Well, She's, she'll say from this previous person that, that had the half Bitcoin. And then we'll say, okay, well, you know, can you trace back your quarter Bitcoin even further? And then she'll say no, because the ledger doesn't encode this further information. So I have a couple of thoughts that I had better get out or else I'm going to forget them. <laughs> okay. Uh, so one of them is this. So do you know, the view occasionalism in yes yeah so you're probably familiar with like the mal branch version of it in, in philosophy right that's right so i'm more familiar with the on, on the islamic side of things oh and so what they had in mind was a sort of i think of it as like a stop action universe so there's no true continuity there's no true motion you've got like tiny, tiny, tiny units of, of time and matter. And it's like at each moment, God destroys everything and he just recreates new particles and new minds and stuff in, yeah. in roughly the same place, but somewhat differently so that things can be in motion at a higher order, I guess. But at bottom, yeah. you've got no continuity of things between one frame and another frame, right? So yeah. things are just being recreated. And so you can talk about things enduring at a higher order in that you can see sort of patterns of similarity across the different frames as time progresses. So I'm kind of wondering if, if it's like that, like with each transaction, 
the universe is recreated anew. The, the, the Bitcoin universe is created anew by this system, but without anything enduring, any individual within it enduring. Is that is that the thought? Yeah, that's really interesting. So I think this is this this could have been the way that we talked about Bitcoin. So, um, and, and in fact, people do use language like this when it revolves around these unspent transaction outputs. So if you've been around or if you eventually get around Bitcoiners enough, these transaction outputs, the ones that haven't been spent yet, they're called UTXOs. And that's just short for unspent transaction output. And once you spend them, then they, they, they evolve from being unspent to spent. And so you've destroyed the UTXO. You've destroyed it. The transaction output is still in the blockchain. But people talk this way. The UTXO is destroyed. And then you make a, you make a, a set of new UTXOs. But those are the transaction unspent transaction outputs. What you're destroying is the um, unspentness. Now that's that's one issue. So I, I mentioned that just because I don't want people to think that Bitcoiners or people who transact in Bitcoin are thinking that the Bitcoin is destroyed because they talk about the dis, um, destruction of UTXOs. And now we get to this more interesting issue, the one that you raise. Could this be what's going on underneath the hood instead of these primitive quantities being preserved from transaction to transaction so that overall the Bitcoin ledger is representing a, a substance which is just growing in quantity over time, up to 21 million Bitcoin. What if every 10 minutes all Bitcoin is destroyed and we get new, a new set of Bitcoin? Kind of like, I, I suppose, um, what's going on when you watch a movie. It's not that there are, you know, these substances moving in, the, um, in, in tandem with the colors that you see on the movie screen. You just get new stuff on the screen every frame. And I think that could have been how Bitcoin works. My take on this is that uh, this is one of the social, socially constructed aspects of Bitcoin. That's just not how people who use Bitcoin talk. That Bitcoin is preserved through transactions. This is how Bit Bitcoiners talk. They could have talked in this Islamic occasionalism way, where uh, you know Bitcoin is destroyed and then recreated. But you know, it, it, and and these things are subject to change. So uh, I mean, I my particular view is that probably we've we've hit a, a point of no return. There are enough Bitcoin people who talk this way that we probably won't see um, like the underlying metaphysics of Bitcoin uh, change too much, uh, but it is still relatively pretty early. And so if the Spencer case way of talking about Bitcoin catches on, um, then eventually, you know, I would be wrong and you would be right. Well, hold on here. Um, can't we be, yeah. can't we be wrong about the things we say about fictions, right? Like some literary analysis is bad analysis, right? Yeah. There are facts about fictions, I guess. And um, you have your account that is apparently in tension with Nakamoto's view and the received view about them being digital coins that are 
uh, chains of transmitted signatures, electronically transmitted signatures. So you seem to agree that they can have, even though it's socially constructed, there can be features of the things we socially construct whose natures are hidden from us and that can be actually uncovered. And so it could be that my way of describing it is just the right way and um, others just haven't seen it yet. It, it, it might be that this isn't the sort of thing that becomes true by agreement, although other aspects of money do. Yeah, good. Great question. So um, so my the view that I defend is that uh, every every transaction output represents a kind of primitive quantity of Bitcoin and that this primitive quantity is a fictional substance. It really doesn't say much about um, the the identity of the substance or the quantities over time. So that would be another issue. Um, uh, but in our conversation, I, I've, I've plopped down for a particular view about that too, which is that these quantities are in certain cases uh, preserved. So I do think there's a fact of the matter about what Bitcoin is. Uh, I think it's a fictional substance. Um, there's another issue about um, the preservation of uh, amounts of this substance. And uh, I think that's that's something that there's also a fact of the matter, but it rests partly on the, the beliefs of the people who are talking and using, talking about and using Bitcoin. So that, you know, if everyone from the get-go was speaking about Bitcoin as if every 10 minutes, like new Bitcoin was created and redistributed according to the consensus rules. Um, and I think that's just what the f- truth of the matter would be. Whereas if uh, people talk like they often talk now, like as if these quantities are preserved, then then that would be what's true about Bitcoin. So um, one thing that I really wanted to ask you when I read your paper, and it was an interesting paper, you seem to be taking a stronger metaphysical view, not just saying that there's no way to know what Bitcoin you end up with in some of these transactions where someone has two Bitcoins and they send you one. Well, which one was it? It's not just, you want to say something more than there's just no way to know. You want to say there's no fact of the matter. Yeah, that's right. There's no fact of the matter. So uh, at least that's what I want to say. And so, um, there are these things in Bitcoin, the Bitcoin world called uh, coin joins. And that's just a fancy word for how um, inputs can can funnel together Bitcoin from different previous transactions into a single output and then out again. So that the transaction histories of all the Bitcoin and the inputs get smeared across all e- each other. So this is like a uh, it increases the fungibility of these little pieces of Bitcoin, because then they all share the same transaction history, uh, all these quantities. But it's also privacy enhancing too, because by smearing these transaction histories, you have a harder, t- you're a harder time telling like which Bitcoins came from where and, and how they're being spent and so on. And so in, in such a coin join, um, be, and because there are no identifiers for these smallest units, every primitive quantity that comes out the other end um, there's just no fact of the matter about where about where any of these quantities has been outside of it's been in either this one or or it came from either this or this or this or this um, and the and the whole 
the whole um, quantity across all the outputs, it came from these outputs at the beginning. So I want to say that because there are no traceable identifiers for the smallest units and because uh, these histories get smeared, there's nothing in the ledger that allows you to differentiate these smallest units. Um, and because the ledger doesn't differentiate in the, in any of the smallest units, there's just no fact of the matter um, about there being these smallest units and about whether they came from, you know, this transaction output from five transactions ago or or that one. Okay, so suppose I send you one Bitcoin and I've got more than one Bitcoin. So if if what you're saying is right, then God Himself could not even I say this was the Bitcoin. I know which Bitcoin of Spencer's that he gave you. God Himself couldn't do that. That's that's right. In in these kinds of cases, that's right. Okay, so I want to push back on you on a couple of points here. So one of them is this: like it seems like there are plausible cases that philosophers have put forward where you have this these these situations where there there must be a fact of the matter about something's identity even though yeah. it's inconceivable that we could point to anything that would distinguish between the two different things so i have yeah. i have in mind here bernard williams came up with this split brain personal identity case that you might be familiar with mm-hmm. so imagine that it were possible to divide somebody's brain, you know, along the corpus callosum down the middle and then remove the two hemispheres and put them into two different bodies and that they could both be alive. Now imagine that you found out that one half of the brain was going to be put into a body where the person would be given a hundred thousand dollars and put on a vacation. And the other brain hemisphere was going to be put into a body of somebody who was going to be tortured in prison for six months, and you were about to be have this operation done on you, you would feel anxious. Probably, you might you you have the sense that there was some sort of risk involved. That like I'm going to be one of these two people, and we know you're going to be one of the two. We know you're not going to be destroyed because it's possible to live to be alive with just one brain hemisphere. So it's weird that you would be dead if there were two living brain hemispheres that were causally connected to you. Okay. So, yeah. so this is the setup and there, you're supposed to have the intuition that there's some sort of risk involved. Like I hope I'm the one that's on vacation and not the one <laughs> that's in prison getting tortured. But yeah, what in principle could determine which one you are? Because even if you interviewed them, each of them would have a memory of having been you Right. Yeah. But your your conscious yeah. couldn't be in both of them simultaneously. So this is a kind of case that is meant to show that you can have questions that epistemically cannot be resolved, which thing is which thing, and yet intuitively there's a definite answer to it. So presumably in this example, God would be able to say for sure which one was Spencer after the operation. And so why yeah. why couldn't Bitcoin be like that? Like there is in fact a metaphysical truth of the matter. And God could say it was this Bitcoin, but there was just no way for you mortals to figure that out. Yeah, good. Yeah, very good. So I mentioned earlier that Bitcoin is is special in that 
it's being at a certain address, truths about it's being at a certain address or a certain range of addresses are determined purely by what the ledger itself says. So the, the grounds for truths about Bitcoin uh, reside in the ledger itself. Inside the fictional universe, um, if there's not a detail specified by the ledger itself, then um, there's no fact of the matter. That would, that would be my view. And so um, there, is a, there is a difficulty here. So su- suppose, you know, we're in the, we're talking about the Harry Potter books and, and Harry pours a cup of butter beer into another cup. Presumably in the f- fictional universe, there are molecules, traceable molecules that are being poured from one cup into the other. Um, even though the story has no information about those molecules. So I think that uh, the Bitcoin ledger is analogous to butterbeer in that way. So butterbeer and Bitcoin are both like fictional substances. And then like the books that are being written about them, the Harry Potter books in one case, and then the Bitcoin ledger in the other, um, they don't specify any detail about the movement of these atoms or molecules. So um, what's to explain why in the Harry Potter case, I think in the Harry Potter universe, that there are going to be truths, you know, that like the Harry Potter world is not indeterminate. Um, but I, but I, that I do think it's indeterminate in the, in the Bitcoin case. And I think what I, the difference I would point to is that, well, we think of the Harry Potter universe much like ours, that it's, it's, it has molecules, it has atoms. And so you can't pour butterbeer in from, in one cup into another without there being molecules. And so there have to be like unspecified truths. So the story is just incomplete, but it, like if we were to enter into the fictional world, things would be determinate in this way. Um, but whereas with Bitcoin, we don't think that like the, the fictional universe of Bitcoin operates according to like Newtonian mechanics or anything. Um, and so there's no reason to think that, you know, the absence of detail about the location locations and histories of the smallest units means that they're there. We just can't know them. Um, that's what I would say. But I, you know, I mean, th- these, these are very difficult things and I, I would be really happy for someone, you know, to present a different view. So here's a challenge. Yeah. I'm not sure that I buy this, but it's, it's pretty compelling. David Barnett, when he was still working as a professor would put forward this view he he had his his dissertation was an argument against indeterminacy, any kind of indeterminacy, and there's a really straightforward argument that proves that there can be no indeterminacy, or you get a contradiction. It's very very simple okay. and hard okay. to resist. And most philosophers will, I mean, a lot of philosophers say, oh, you need to like introduce three value logic or do something like that. But Barnett was like, no, no. And it insisted on, on this simple argument. This couldn't be, this couldn't be okay. wrong. So the simple argument is I'm this. so excited to hear that. Yeah. So, so um, suppose that it's indeterminate whether Judd is bald. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So if it's indeterminate that Judd is bald, then Judd is bald is true is is going to be a false statement. It's not true that he's bald. It's because yeah. it's indeterminate. 
I think you see where I'm going with this. Judd is not bald, is true. It's going to be <laughs> a false statement, right? And you just do the logic yeah. here and you see, well, wait a minute. Like it's, it, it's not true that he's bald. It's, it's not true that he's not bald. Contradiction. So there can be no indeterminacy. Yeah. So what's, what's my response to this argument? Yeah. Yeah. My response is that even though, I mean, suppose, suppose we don't, we reject the three value logic. So we only admit truths and falses. Well, um, that matters in, in this case is only convincing to the extent that the predicates bald and not bald are like exhaustive. So, so if, so if you're bald, then you're not bald. And if you're um, not, if you're bald, then you're not, not bald. Um, and if you're not bald, then you're not, not, not bald. <laughs> um, and and so I, I would, I would respond and say that the bald predicate, the meaning of the bald predicate is it makes it so that the argument fails. It's not that we need another third value, like truth, false, and like indeterminate, like, or like, like in between or indeterminate. It's just that the, the predicates are not fully specified. And so that between being bald and between being not bald, there is a, a wide area for the world to be. And so so how does this relate to Bitcoin? So you, so you could say, um, if you're someone like Barnett, it's not, it's not the case that the Bitcoin came from this output. It's also not the case that it didn't come from that output. Um, therefore, so, that, so the Bitcoin either had to come from the particular output or not. Um, otherwise, we have contradiction. And I want to say, well, no, the transaction histories in Bitcoin work a lot like baldness. And that having a particular transaction history or not having that transaction history together don't exhaust all the possible cases. Just as being bald or not bald. I mean, I, I guess it also depends on what you what you mean by um, not bald. I, I suppose you could you could you could specify a meaning for not bald so that you just don't meet the sufficient conditions for being bald. And then there, I guess there would be a truth of the matter. But I was thinking that um, there's this like in between area where uh, where you don't meet the sufficient conditions for being bald, uh, but you also don't meet the sufficient conditions for being not bald. And I think I think if you think of having a transaction history and not having a transaction history in the same way. Um, then these predicates, they're, they're not like eg mutually exclusive and exhaustive in the same way. So like every possible situation for there to be like you either fit into one or the other. Yeah. It sounds to me, it sounds to me like you've either got to say the first premise is meaningless. Like you, it, there's nothing to be bald because like, it's not a sufficiently specified predicate, which then like that's going to infect yeah. all of our language or else you've got to bite the bullet and say, we got to have, we got to reject bivalence. There's got to be true, false, and indeterminate. We've got to have three <laughs> values here. And then, and then yeah. Barnett's going to say, yeah. really, you're going to give up on bivalence and classical logic 
to preserve indeterminacy. Why are you so wedded to indeterminacy? Are you going to give up bivalence to preserve any of your other views? Yeah. No, I, I, the, the first horn there, that most of our language works this way, what's wrong with that? I mean, for the, for the most part, I mean, I think we have, there are some predicates with like very precise meanings and that the, that predicate and the negation of its predicate, like the, like the negative version of that predicate, like together they exhaust all the possibilities. You're either one or the other, but I don't know that most of our predicates work that way. Okay. So if most of our predicates don't work that way, you can't say, I mean, I, I, I don't really think it matters how you define bald, really. I think it just matters that you you think that, you know, for any proposition, it's either got to be true or false. Like no, no matter where, if if you mean, if by bald, you mean outside of the gray area or you mean, or you mean it okay. more expansively, it seems like either way you define it, you, you either got to say it's true that someone is bald or it's false. Anyway, anyway, you see, you see the, yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. So let's, let's do it with that. And then I'd say, yeah, if, if you, if you do treat like not bald as being whatever is not meeting this precise, precise de- definition of baldness, then we can, we can, then I'm, I'm okay with that. I, I don't think that's our, that's our um, bald predicate in natural language, but by persistifying the predicates in this way, that's a way to save bivalence and also, you know, not attribute indeterminacy to the world. Um, and I, I, th- I would say the same thing then would hold for the Bitcoin ledger. Um, so when you have these like coin join situations where the transaction histories get smeared, it's, it's just not true that some Bitcoin has a particular transaction history. It's, that's false. And uh, the, the correct thing to say would be, well, what is true is that this particular amount of Bitcoin is tied at this point to other quantities of Bitcoin. They all came from these particular outputs and, and none of them have a particular transaction history in between. All right. Well, maybe it helps you somewhat here that you're not talking about. You could say, well, at least I'm not talking about indeterminacy in the world. Because there's this further difficulty of how could how could the total sum of the way things are not settle the way things are? That just seems like counterintuitive on its face. But you could say, well, it's in a fiction. I'm saying that this is a fiction. And so yeah. indeterminacy in a fiction seems, I guess, less bad than indeterminacy in in the real world. The, yeah, that's right. I mean, it, it, what's interesting is that um, there are these issues with indeterminacy and quantum mechanics about the real world also – so if you think that the world is also indeterminate, then the the Bitcoin ledger is is no worse off than the natural world. And I, I hope that there are more physicists who start writing about Bitcoin. So the CEO of Unchained Capital, um, one of the major custodying, custodying uh, service uh, companies in the United States, a former PhD student in physics. And I was just talking with him about this last week. He thinks that there's indeterminacy in this way. I mean, and, and so, yeah, I, I, I think that, you know, because, because the Bitcoin ledger represents this kind of fictional universe 
and there's so little information uh, embedded in the ledger, um, how we read it makes a big difference. And I think, like I mentioned, mentioned earlier, uh, we could read it in a, in a way, we would choose to read it in a way so that there are these little units and it's indeterminate where they've been, just, just like, you know, there might be uh, these like point particles in the real world and it's indeterminate where they've been if certain interpretation of quantum mechanics is true. So, I mean, my view is that, you know, that there aren't these little things with indeterminate histories. Um, there's just the quantities with indeterminate histories, but you could read it a, d- a different way and that might catch on. And if it does, then I think that there would be a, a kind of truth of the matter about the fictional world that the ledger is representing because we have a say in how it represents. This just reminds me that Barnett actually said um, when he was a graduate student, he presented a paper arguing against the Copenhagen Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics. And one of the professors at NYU, I think it was Christopher Peacock was like, Oh, here comes Dave Barnett, the NYU grad student, presenting a two-premise argument against the Copenhagen interpretation (laughs) of quantum mechanics. And Barnett said, he's like, well, I can add more premises if you want. Yeah, that's a good story. (laughs) Well, it's been fascinating. It's been fascinating. I I think I ought to let you go at this point, but I think we, my goal was to explore some of the metaphysical issues of Bitcoin. I think we've done that. I think we've done that. Good. Yeah. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for reading my paper and pressing me on these issues. I hope uh, what people get from this is not that I've settled the matter, but that there are a range of open questions that that call for more philosophical work. And that would make me very happy. Terrific.